I really respected the queen. I mean, I think she was uh, really elegant, and I think her stoicism, and, and I think it was really good. You know, as the younger generations, it's a little bit more mixed. I mean, that's just the reality. Are they annoying? I think for some they are. I mean, look, I I'm not involved in that, Baloo. <laughs> I just kind of focus on, but I think for some Americans, they can be. If you do decide to run in the next few months, obviously it will then be you v. Donald Trump for the Republican nomination. People have been quite kind of scathing. They've said your house-trained Donald, your Diet Coke to his <laughs> full Coke, right? You've heard all this stuff. What are the differences between you? Well, I mean, I think there's a few things. I mean, obviously, you know, the, the approach to COVID was, was different. I mean, you know, I would have fired somebody like Fauci. Uh, I think that he got way too big for his britches, and I think he did a lot of damage. Uh, I also think just in terms of my approach to leadership, you know, I get personnel in the government who have the agenda of the people and share our agenda. If you bring your own agenda in, you're gone. We're just not gonna have that. So the way we run the government, I think, is no daily drama, focus on the big picture, and put points on the board. And I think that that's something that's very important. You've not been sucked into responding to any of the taunts. Is that a deliberate strategy? I'm just not following it. I mean, I get taunted and I get attacked every day. I mean, you see some of that. I, it, to me, it's just kind of background noise. It's not important for me to be fighting with people on social media. Uh, it's not accomplishing anything for the people I represent. Does personal conduct in any leader politically in America, does it matter how you behave as a leader? I mean, I think at the end of the day, uh, what a leader, you really want to look to people like our founding fathers. Like, what type of character, it's not saying that you don't ever make a mistake in your personal life, but I think what type of character are you bringing? So somebody who really set the standard is George Washington, because he always put the republic over his own personal interests. When we won the American Revolution, Washington surrendered his sword. George III said, well, if he surrenders his... Can you not intrude into private <laughs> grief? Without him, we could have had King Piers. That's right. By now. But George III said, he's the greatest man in the world if he gives up power. And so I think the personal is more about how you handle your public duties and, and the kind of character that you bring for, to that endeavor. I mean, I lost a job because I disbelieved Meghan Markle. There with, you her, go. with her claims of racism against the royal family. I said, I don't believe it. So I had to leave my job. I mean, it was completely insane. When you think about it, yeah. now I'd be fired for believing it. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. Right? That's true. I mean, it's true. Um, when you Although, my, I'll tell you, though, my book beat Prince. You know, his, his book had come out earlier, number one, and then when I became number you one, him off, I, know. I was higher than Prince Harry. We're all very grateful. <laughs> what, do you, what do you make of those two? Do you have a view of them? I don't. I mean, you know, I think that um, I really respected the queen. I mean, I mm. think she was uh, really elegant, and I think her stoicism, and, and I think it was really good. You know, as the younger generations, it's a little bit more mixed. I mean, that's just the reality. Are they annoying? I think for some they are. I mean, look, I I'm not involved in that, Baloo. <laughs> I just kind of focus on, but I think for some Americans they can be. There was an incredibly sad time in your life, which was the loss of your sister, um, Christina, who died in London. Um, it was reported she died of a pulmonary embolism. Is that, is that yep. what happened? And she was leading a great life. She just got engaged, I think, to a British guy. Her life was all ahead of her. And then, bang, it's all taken away and she dies at the age of 30. What was that moment like for you and your family? Well, I think it was just, you know, it kind of was like a shattering experience, you know, partially because she was doing well, she was very happy, 
She was over there, and I remember my mom calling me. My wife and I were on our way back from church. It was like a Sunday after, Sunday morning, and she said that, you know, Christina's in the hospital. She had a blood clot. And so I'm thinking, like, is she okay? And she seemed to be stable. So she was in the hospital for a couple of days and then had the embolism uh, and died in the hospital. And so I just didn't think that that was something that was even possible mm -hmm. at that point because I thought that she was stable. And so we were, I mean, you just feel like, you know, you have your sibling, you know, their, their future was robbed. And, um, you know, it's just something I wish I could get back. What did she make of, of you and what was happening with you? <laughs> I was the big brother, so we were 85, I was seven years apart. So we weren't necessarily ever in like the same school together or any of that. So I was kind of like a little bit rarefied air in some respects. She always looked up to me. Um, and I think some of it was because I was doing things, she tried to measure up to me. And I told her, I was like, don't worry about that. I was like, you just be you and, and do, do what you can do. And you know, she was very successful. Um, mm -hmm. You know, once she got out of school, she got her master's and everything. So. Um, but you know, it just—it's—it's a—it's uh, a tough thing. I could, yeah, you're clearly feeling quite emotional thinking about it. Yeah. It's hard to think of a worse thing actually for a family, I think, than losing a sibling. I mean, I just think you know, people have their whole lives ahead of them, mm -hmm. and when you're talking about that age, it's just—it's a big tragedy. How yeah. are you? Uh, well, you know what makes what chemo does to you is uh, you feel so horrible that after you start recovering, you, you feel better every single day, but you still feel like crap. So that's when you realize how many levels of crap <laughs> there are <laughs> until you start feeling semi-normal. So I'm semi-normal now, but the leftovers are still there. It's been, I mean, a very unpleasant mm. experience for you. It's not your first time that you've had to go through a battle with cancer. How has it been different if it has this time? Well, uh, so the first time it happened was 13 years ago. And it was DCIS, Ductal Carcinoma Institute, which means it could turn into cancer, but it's kind of pre-cancer situation, but you still have to do the radiation, et cetera. So it was a shock to the system, but compared to when I got this diagnosis, that was a piece of cake. That was like not a non-issue because this one, uh, at first, when the doctor told me uh, that I had cancer, squamous cell carcinoma uh, in the throat, and then he says, and by the way, we don't know where it's coming from. We need to find out it could be the lungs or the liver or the kidneys. End of story. So I'm th this is Friday afternoon when I got the news. Had you gone in for a routine check? Or uh, no, no, no. So have we found it uh, when uh, I had, um, uh, I noticed that my left lymph node was enlarged. And I thought it was from a uh, shingles shot that I just had vaccine like a week before. And I thought it was maybe from that, but then a couple of weeks when it didn't go down, I called the doctor and he ordered a biopsy. And were you feeling, after a couple of weeks, were you feeling a sense of foreboding about it, that it wasn't going down? Oh, well, I, sense of foreboding when I asked the doctor, what do you think the chances are? He says, about 50-50. I'm like, mm, I don't like those odds. Mm. So that's when I thought, because the lymph nodes don't get swelled up for no reason. Um, and uh, that, so I didn't have a good feeling about it at that point. So I'm thinking it could be the brain, it could mm. be the pancreas. Uh, Labor is not a good thing either, neither is lungs. So I was in a total panic for three days thinking I, I may not see next Christmas. Wow. That's, so that's I had a... three horrible nights. I'm like, he needed to find out. So Monday, mm. Monday morning I'd speak to an oncologist and he says, oh, it's for sure coming from, from the throat. And it's P16, which is extremely treatable and 95% you know, full recovery. So whew, big, big relief. But, you know, 
so emotionally, it, it's been up and down because, uh, because of what the doctor initially told me. The, could, the, the initial, when you first had the tests, yeah. what was the first cancer detected? The breast cancer or throat cancer? No, the throat cancer. And was the first thing it detected. Yeah, so what they do, they know it's cancer, they know it's in the throat, but they don't know where. So then you do a PET scan. Mm. And, uh, and where you don't eat, uh, and then they give you glucose, and then the cancer sucks the glucose. So that's where mm. they know where the cancer is. So that's when they see exactly where it is in the throat. And my right breast lit up as well. <laughs> so, literally? Literally. Well, the, the cancer lights up. It's, it, goes, it goes red. And this um, was the other breast to the one that you, yeah, you the had the first, first one. The first one was breast. on the left, uh, lumpectomy, and took out some lymph nodes. And the right one uh, is different cancer. Uh, similar area, uh, but this was a real, actual, real tumor that was about seven, eight millimeters. So they caught it so early that they did not see it on the, uh, on, on the mammogram, which I just had. And Richard Dawkins joins me now. Richard Dawkins, thank you very much indeed for agreeing to appear on Piers Morgan Uncensored. Pleasure. I assume you will be uncensored. Of course. You've never been censored, have you? No. <laughs> In fact, people have tried to censor you, and we're going to come to a bit of that later on. This cancel culture has even come to your door. What do you make of, of that? People these days not wanting to hear opinions they don't like. I think it's very sad. I think, especially in, uni in universities, where I spent all my life, universities are places where you should be free to speak your mind, listen, even to something that you don't like. And it's very tragic that universities seem to have bought into the idea that if you don't like what you, what you think you're going to hear from someone, you should shut them up and refuse to let them speak. Yeah, I mean, I find it completely baffling that at a place of education where the whole point is to test your own thought processes and to deliberately be exposed to other thoughts, we're now in a place where a lot of students feel they just don't want to hear it. They only want to hear stuff that validates their own opinion. They use this word safe. They want to feel safe. And university is the one place where you should not feel safe. Yes, Certainly it should not be dangerous. Safe. Yes, exactly. In terms of thinking, yes. you know, I just think you want to be constantly challenged and provoked about what you believe and what you think. You want to be physically safe, but, but yes. inter intellectually you should be challenged. I'm going to come more to this, because I think the whole cancel culture, woke kind of world we live in is, is a fascinatingly disturbing one, and you've got strong views on it. But I want to start, because you're known as one of the world's big thinkers, I want to start with some big theme stuff. And I guess there's no bigger theme than evolution itself. And I think I'd, I'd ask the question like this. What do we know now about where we've come from? And what don't we know? OK. We know once you've got um, a self-replicating entity, which nowadays is DNA, but it wasn't originally, once you've got life started, once natural selection, Darwinian natural selection has got going, then we pretty much understand the four billion year history of what's given rise to us and all other living creatures. We don't know how it started, and that's still a mystery, and it may always be a mystery, because it happened a very long time ago, and uh, we may never know exactly what did happen. We know the kind of thing it had to be. What kind of thing do you think it was? It was the origin of a self-replicating molecule, a molecule that makes copies of itself. DNA is such a molecule, but the original one was almost certainly not DNA, because DNA is a, it's been called a high-tech replicator. There had to be a precursor to DNA. Something, the laws of chemistry, gave rise to a, a molecule which had this unusual property of making copies of itself, which mutated, changed in mm. random ways, 
and that gave rise to competition between rival versions of it, and that gave rise to the whole panoply of life eventually. OK, so I'm a Catholic, I was raised a Catholic, um, so I'm a religious person, which I know is anathema to you, and we'll come to that. But my arguments with atheists, historically, have always come down to one thing, and maybe you've got an answer which will persuade me of the folly of my ways, which is this. What was there at the start? We don't know. But I don't know and you don't know. But, can, but, can, but no human brain, unless you want to correct me, can actually comprehend nothingness, right? No, but it's, a, it's an, a fallacy to think that because I don't understand how it happened, therefore God did it. I mean, that's just weak. Well, no, I'm not, I, OK, but I'm prepared to have an open mind about this. Yes. But somebody did. And I just have never met a human brain that can explain to me what happened before, say, you go for the Big Bang argument. Well, what was there before? What, what does nothing look like? Physicists are debating this. I'm not a physicist, but they're debating it. My point is that they don't know and I don't know and you don't know and it doesn't help to postulate a god that did it. But that you're certain it's not a god and yet you admit you don't know. No, I'm, I'm certain that it doesn't help to postulate something very complicated at the outset because what we've got is primeval simplicity and from that stems everything. Mm. And what science does, it starts with simplicity, which is relatively easy to understand, and from that it develops into the whole of the universe and the whole of life. It doesn't help to start with complexity, and a creator has to be complex, whatever but else the, he is. The reason that I subscribe to the theory that there must be a more powerful being out there than anything the human race has created is because, like I say, a human brain can't comprehend nothingness or what may have come before nothingness. We can't. We're not able to extrapolate what that is, right? I mean, no scientist can explain nothingness, can they? Plausibly. Well, well maybe they can't. You'd have to talk to a physicist, but even... Could you explain it? No, quite not a physicist. But no, but you're a very smart guy and you're I'm... a very vehement atheist. No, I'm not, I'm and not you're... that vehement. Well, you're pretty um... vehement. I mean, you, you just think all belief in all gods is ludicrous, right? I think that it doesn't help to introduce complexity at the outset. That's my point. No, no, I, I get that, but... but no, well, you, I don't think you do get well, it. Well, no, I do, because I... But you're asking me to consider that my own belief in a, a deity that may be above human thinking and understanding and brain power that was there universally, that my theory is scientifically flawed, whereas I would throw back at you, OK, but I need to be given an alternative. I need some scientist somewhere to explain to me, right, four, four billion years, all right, but then what was there before that? Well, scientists can't answer that, and, they, and what they say is things like it's like going, to the, it's like going north of the North Pole. Mm. I'm sure, I gather you recently introduced Stephen Hawking. He probably said that to you. Yeah, um, he did, actually, yeah. <laughs> um, but the, the point is this. Science can explain things starting with simplicity and working up to complexity. No, I get that, but where science can't explain something i.e. in the case I just gave you, is it not possible that you're all wrong on the atheist of side of the argument? We could, we could be all wrong, but what... And you what might if... get a shocking surprise one day well, when you're you no might. longer with us. You, you might. And you discover we were right all yeah. along. It's possible. <laughs> <laughs> Do you concede it's possible? 
It's highly unlikely. Welcome back to Piers Morgan Uncensored. Donald Trump is fighting for his political life as he faces criminal indictment over hush money he paid to the porn star Stormy Daniels. Well, that's the allegation anyway, but that doesn't seem to be the only thing ruffling the former president's feathers. He wasn't overly impressed that I sat down with his current most formidable presidential rival, the wildly successful governor of Florida, Ron DeSantis. It's a whole show that will air tomorrow night and it'll make riveting viewing, but not if you're Donald Trump. Well, Make America Great Again, a group formed of his allies, released a statement earlier saying, Ron DeSantis is lashing out against President Trump, in my interview, because his poll numbers keep falling. Unfortunately for DeSantis, sitting down for an interview to bash President Trump with gun-grabber Piers Morgan won't solve his issues with Republican voters. Well, to be clear, I don't like grabbing guns. I don't actually like guns at all. Uh, it didn't stop there. Shortly later, to my <laughs> lack of surprise... Uh, President Trump himself took to his social media platform to say, while I'm fighting against radical left lunatics, persecutors and unfair prosecutors who want to destroy us all, Ron DeSanctimonious is not working for the people of Florida as he should be. He's too busy chatting <laughs> with a ratings challenge TV host from England, desperately trying to rescue his failing campaign. But it's my fault. I put him there. I don't know if he's talking about Ron DeSanctimonious or me there at the end. Um, but I, in view of sitting down with me, President Trump, you seem to be suffering from some amnesia because you've sat down with me yourself about 40 times, uh, including three times when you were President of the United States. So it couldn't have been that bad. Uh, anyway, joining me now is the former senior counsellor to President Trump from 2017 to 2020, Kellyanne Comer. Kellyanne, lovely to see you. Hi, Paris. Thanks for having me. I always think it's the high point of flattery if Donald Trump takes time from his busy day <laughs> annihilating everybody else to launch a personal savage attack on on me and thoroughly enjoyed it today and it wasn't unexpected but behind it I'm, I'm curious what you think of what's going on here in terms of how he views Ron DeSantis and how damaging if at all this whole legal thing in New York is going to beat him because it seems the more that people talk about it the more his poll numbers seem to be improving so first things first, on the DeSantis-Trump question, I got to congratulate you for getting the governor to sit down and give a major interview. And back to back, then you had a former president, perhaps future president, um, make elevate you on social media. So you're having a really good week, Piers Morgan. <laughs> uh, in terms of DeSantis, I mean, I think President Trump has made very clear he feels that Ron DeSantis should be more grateful to him for giving him his endorsement in the primaries when DeSantis was famously at 3%, showing pictures of his infant and toddler children, uh, building walls and having a MAGA onesie on and everything, and then, of course, campaigning for him. And Ron DeSantis won the first time with less than 50% of the vote, very small margin. But what DeSantis has done in Florida since is pretty remarkable. He's been an excellent governor on many accounts. And, uh, and I think Trump has DeSantis where he wants him right now. Trump's poll numbers are going up. DeSantis is not a declared candidate. And even you sitting down for an interview about Ron DeSantis as governor of Florida is forcing him to respond to Donald Trump. So I think all of these candidates are going to be asked the most popular common question is going to be Trump. Yeah. I think so far, Senator Tim Scott handled the question the best. I watched him in an interview when he was asked the legitimate question, Piers. So how are you different from Donald Trump on policy? Where do you differ that way? We would think that you're also for an America First agenda. And Senator Scott said, we probably differ very little. That's really the right answer. Well, I, it was and, interesting, um, it's interesting because I do asked, think, yeah, yeah, just on that point, I mean, I did ask uh, DeSantis that question. Let's see what he said. Let's play the clip. 
People have been quite kind of scathing. They've said your house-trained Donald, your Diet Coke to his <laughs> full Coke, right? You've heard all this stuff. What are the differences between you? Well, I know what I, I know him very well. I, having now spent time with you, I, I could immediately identify a few differences. But what do you think of the differences? Well, I mean, I think there's a few things. I mean, obviously, you know, the, the approach to COVID was, was different. I mean, you know, I would have fired somebody like Fauci. Uh, I think that he got way too big for his britches, and I think he did a lot of damage. Uh, I also think just in terms of my approach to leadership, you know, I get personnel in the government who have the agenda of the people and share our agenda. If you bring your own agenda in, you're gone. We're just not gonna have that. So the way we run the government, I think, is no daily drama, focus on the big picture, and put points on the board. And I think that that's something that's very important. I thought that was an interesting response. It wasn't particularly about policy, although obviously COVID, he would argue that by being a much, uh, much more free in the way he responded to it in Florida, it turned out to be a smart move. Um, but on this question of how he runs government, there's no doubt, is there? If, if Trump gets back into the White House, you were there last time, you were probably one of the lone voices of calm sanity. But all around you was daily drama and chaos. I mean, there was. It's indisputable. And I'm sure that would be the same again. Donald Trump thrives off that kind of stuff. So there you have a clear point of difference in style. DeSantis struck me as somebody pretty serious-minded, He's not, a, you know, he doesn't go out with all the, the lobby gang. He's not a Washington guy. He just wants to do his job and, as he puts it, rack up the score. And he's been very successful in Florida. I mean, he turned a 30,000 majority first time he ran for governor, tiny majority, to 1.5 million, uh, arguably the standout Republican star of the, the, of the midterm. So he's positioning himself as a different kind of leader, albeit they pursue a lot of similar policies. Yes. I don't believe that the Republican nomination is going to be won or lost. It appears on gender, on age, on race, on style, and not substance. Um, people are drowning economically. They're searching for pockets of air. Many of them do want the guy back who they felt made them more prosperous and safer. Now, there are plenty of other people who want an alternative to President Trump, even though his poll numbers have been increasing this year. And he's really put a bit of distance, according to the political morning consult poll just this week, really put a bit of difference, distance between he and Ron DeSantis and the Republican primary mm -hmm. electorate. But I, I think for DeSantis, he should talk more about policy, taxes, regulation, his, uh, any of his national security and foreign policy bona fides, because I'll tell you, the world feels like it's on fire right now in so many places. You have Xi Jinping and Vladimir Putin uh, with this budding romance, you have Iran salivating at Israel, you have them also talking to China, it seems like, through Saudi Arabia. So many hot spots, Ukraine and Putin. Um, I think these governors who have a great story to tell, including DeSantis, are going to need to show that they have what it takes to be commander-in-chief and national security uh, uh, as well. And let me just make very clear, it won't matter who the Republican nominee is for president, that person will become unrecognizable to the rest of us. They will do to Ron DeSantis or anyone else what they did to Donald Trump. And that that's a given. I also was very surprised he didn't just say, damn straight I can. When you asked DeSantis the question, can you beat Joe Biden? He said, I think so. Well, it's, it's, well it's interesting, it's interesting because when you read that, it sounds like he was in some self-doubt. When you watch it, and I'll play the clip now, it comes over slightly differently. Watch this. You think you could beat Biden? I think so. So you're running then? No, I didn't say that. I just said I think I could. I mean, I think that that's... I mean, if you look at Florida... Who would be harder to beat, Biden or Donald Trump? We're, I don't know. Those are two different... <laughs> well, they are two different people, that's for sure.